for our sound department. We're getting a ton of static on this side. I don't know if you can hear it back there or not, but I can hear it. So we're in week two of our sermon series, Troubled Waters, kind of a relationship series, kind of a marriage series, kind of a just a, an overall general purpose kind of a series that, that hopefully you'll be able to get things each week that will help draw you closer to God, that will help you live a more productive life here in this world. Today's sermon is entitled, Caught in the Undertow. Now, I grew up here in Florida. I know some of you, the rest of you did too, many of you are transplants here, but growing up in Florida, we would, we would go to the beach, you know, usually at least once or twice a year, and sometimes as I got older as a teenager and as a young adult, I'd spend more time at the beach for a while. We lived down in South Florida, not very far from the beach at all. As a matter of fact, it was close enough we could, we could walk, but it was uh, more of a, a short car drive because we had to go over the bridge. So, so we, would, we spent a lot of time at the beach. And you start learning some things when you're at the beach for, after, for a little while. You start recognizing things like undertoes and things like drift that are at the beach. Because it's not like it is on TV where you just go out and come straight back in. The water is always moving. And it's not just moving towards the shore. There's oftentimes that it's moving away from the shore. Now, it's easy to see it moving towards the shore because you see the waves coming at you, coming at you, coming at you. But the undertows are very, very hard to see. And many times you can't even spot the currents in the undertows until you find yourself caught in one. Here in Florida, we also have what's called a drift that, that it's not just water that's coming in and out. The water is actually moving. If you're facing the water, the water is actually moving from right to left because we have a, a current that goes all the way around the state and up, up the eastern coast. It's called the, the Gulf Stream. So if you go straight out from your blanket into the water and you're not paying attention, you'll end up a quarter of a mile down the beach before you realize what's going on. And I thought this was appropriate today to talk about since we live in Florida and we're, we're familiar with these things because this is the same thing that often happens in a, in a marriage and this is the same thing that often, often happens in a Christian's life. You see, marriages rarely fail and Christians rarely run away from God. What normally happens is there's a slow movement. There's a slow erosion that takes place within a relationship. Whether that relationship is with another person or that relationship is with God. Now our text this morning, or our starting point this morning is in Matthew chapter 19. I think I, I, think I put that in your, your, your syllabus there, your, your notes. Matthew chapter 19, verse number 4 says, And he answered and said unto them, Have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female. Verse 5, and he said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. Verse 6, Wherefore they are no more twain but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. asunder. Now, we generally read this last part when? At a marriage, right? When we're joining two people together. We say, we're putting them together. If anybody comes in and they try and separate it, you know, they're going to have to deal with God. But I want you to see just a couple things real quick this morning about this. First of all, that last line, let not man put asunder, that assumes that there are forces out there on this earth, people that are going to try and come in, into your marriage and try to destroy your marriage. Some of them will do this on purpose, but more often... It's not people that are doing it on purpose as it is people that think they're giving you good advice or think that they're helping. Or you ever heard the old term, misery loves company? Sometimes it's just they're miserable and you're happy and subconsciously they can't deal with that. We, we live in a society today that is, is more hateful and more miserable than I, I remember any time in my life. And it seems like those are the most hateful and those are the most miserable. They want everybody else around them to be hateful and miserable too. And if you're not, they attack because they're going to make you miserable because if they're miserable, then everybody has to be. It assumes that somebody's going to try and undermine your relationship. That's the undertow. That's the drift. People may want to bring you down to their misery. They, they may have alternative motives. They may want to be with the person you're with. They may want that husband or they may want that wife. Whatever the motive is, God is assuming, God is, is, is teaching us to assume that there are powers out there that want to destroy our marriage. And if, if we know that, if we know there's powers out there that want to get involved in our relationships, if we know that to be a fact, doesn't it make sense that we're guarding on it? That we're prepared for it? That we're not shocked when it happens? I've seen so many marriages that they're shocked when somebody pours negativeness into their marriage. 
or into the relationship. First thing I want to look at this morning, your first blank, I think, on your sheet. I'm, we're going we're to put those influences, we're going to put influences in their proper place. Put influences in their proper place. See, the Bible doesn't say to get rid of influences, but we need to put them in their proper place. Notice what else that ver- those verses says. It says, and for this cause shall a man leave father and mother. Now, does that mean that father and mother never have an influence on that marriage? Does that mean that father and mother never have an influence on those people ever again? Of course not. Guys, does your mother-in-law ever influence your marriage? Nobody's scared to answer. But, or ladies, does your mother-in-law ever influence your marriage? Particularly at the beginning? It's not saying to, to, to eliminate them. It's saying put them in their proper place. See, the, the husband, he has to leave that family. The wife has to leave her family. Why do they have to leave? Because they're starting a new family. They're starting a new entity. It's two people that are going to join together, as God has described, is going to join together, and those two people join together, those two are going to become a new family. So we leave father and mother. We put them in their proper place. The next thing we need to do is we need to seek wise counsel. Seek wise counsel. Proverbs 12, 15 says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but he that hearkeneth unto counsel is wise. We need to establish wise counsel. There's plenty of counsel out there. There's plenty of people that want to tell you how to run your marriage. There's plenty of people that want to tell you how to date. There's plenty of people that want to influence and put their opinions and their their needs and wants and desires into your head. But we need to be very, very careful and make sure that the people that we allow to speak into our marriage and into our relationships, we need to make sure that they're wise counsel. Not just counsel, but wise counsel. Wisdom comes from God. And if we want wise counsel, we need to have people who are godly people that are speaking into our relationships. We need to surround ourselves with with people that are are, are wise counsel, that are godly counsel. By the way, probably the largest group of counselors out there that are going to try and speak into your marriage are friends and family whose marriages failed. They're going to be the most vocal. And they're going to tell you how to do it. Because they know everything there is to do about it. They're going to try and speak into it, but does somebody that failed, now you may be able to learn something from them, you may be able to learn something from their failure, but they're not an expert on relationships. They're definitely not an expert on your relationship. I had a gentleman call me up one time. I was actually, I was at at Walmart um, over on 535, and I I just got gas, I got my car, my phone's ringing. I pull over off the side, and and I, and I, I, he's like, hey, uh, I'm, I want to get married. I'm like, well, this is kind of sudden. I don't even know who you are. And I'm kind of already married. So, but, so he says, no, no. He said, uh, you know, uh, I, I want to get married. Uh, you know, my fiance and I, we want to get married. And, you know, we're wondering, we live out, th- out there in the manor, and we were wanting to know if you could do the service. I said, well, yeah. So we can meet. We could discuss it. We could talk about it. I don't know. Maybe. I said, when were you planning on doing this? He said, Saturday. Well, Saturday's not going to work. Oh, do you already have something going on Saturday? Maybe we could do it Friday. Like, no, no, no. It's not, it's not the time. It's the lack of time is the problem. See, because before I do a wedding, before I, I will stand up and, and preside over that, that service, I need to sit down with the bride and the groom, and, and we need to do some counseling. We need to, we need to, to make sure that, that they understand what the Bible says about their relationship. They need to know. If you're going into this relationship, you need to have a, uh, some semblance or some indication of, of why you're getting married and what's to be expected of you. Now, does, does that mean that they always follow it? No, unfortunately not. But they can't say it was because of ignorance. It's because of a bad heart or lack of desire or other things. But we want to give them that ahead of time. And that doesn't happen quick because the Bible has so much to say about marriage and about relationships. So I told him, I said, I said the, the fastest I've ever done it, the shortest period of time, has been about six weeks. And a lot of that's based on the first meeting. I find out where they are and how much they already know and, you know, where they're at. And we go from there. I said, the, the shortest one I've ever done has been six weeks. Well, I don't have six weeks. We need to get married now. He never told me what the sense of urgency was there. And I said, well, I said, I don't think I can do it. I said, because 
I, I have to, we have to go through the counseling. And he says, he started to get mad. And he says, look, I was married for 30 years. I know everything there is to know about marriage. Well, what happened to your first wife? Did she die? No, 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 we got divorced. It doesn't sound like you know everything there is to know about marriage. If your first and only marriage failed, his response was, click. I never heard from him again. But he thinks he knows everything there is to know about marriage. He knows everything there is to know about failing in a marriage. I know that sounds harsh, doesn't it? But it's the truth. That doesn't say that he doesn't have something valuable to bring to the table, because hopefully he learned something from his attitude. I don't think he did. Hopefully he learned something in that failure, but, but it wouldn't make him an expert at that. We want people, you want to surround, you want, you want a strong marriage, surround yourself with godly people that are in marriages that are successful. Now again, it doesn't mean that you can duplicate what they're doing because each marriage is unique, but follow their, their advice and you'll be better off. I said the drift and the undertow. The thing about undertow is undertow will happen pretty quick. If you ever get caught in an undertow, you know, it'll, it'll drag you out pretty quick. Next thing you know, you know you're, you're, you're two, three hundred yards out in the ocean, and you weren't planning on being out that far. You, you, you've just put yourself in a place where now you're dinner for something out there. And it, it's desperate when you get caught in an undertow. It feels kind of desperate. And your, your natural reaction is to, to put all your force and everything into fighting against the undertow. But, but if you use just your force alone heading against the undertow, you'll never win because the undertow is stronger than you are. And the powers of this world are stronger than you are. And if you try and just use just your powers, you'll fail every single time. That doesn't say we shouldn't resist. The Bible is very specific. Resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. But the power we use to resist is the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, we need to understand when it comes to marriages and it comes to relationships, that if we want to be closer together, we need to get closer to God. I, I need some volunteers. Thank you, Wes. Pam, come on up. And Nathan, thank you. Thank you for volunteering. Nathan, stand right here in the middle. And then Wes and Pam, stand on either side of him. Nathan in the middle. You need to be on this side. Yeah. Okay. I know, I just woke him up. Um, okay, so for the for just for our our um, example here, please, this is not blasphemy. This is not and it's not me anyways, it's Nathan. Nathan today is playing the part of God. Again, if you're mad about that. Be mad at Nathan. He's the one doing it, not me. So, so, so this is God. Symbolically. God wishes he had that hair. No, just kidding. Uh, so here, here's a couple, a married couple. And I want you to see something. If, if let's say that, that, you know, right now Wes is, is closer to God than what Pam is. Did you notice that? that some symbolism? I'm just, just stating what I'm seeing. I'm not, not casting any judgment or anything. But, but what happens if, if Wes kind of takes his eyes off of God and starts going this way? You notice what happens is he gets further away from God. What's, what else is he getting further away from? Getting further away from Pam. And the same thing happens if she was to move the other way. She's getting further away from her husband. But as they focus upon him and both walk back towards him, what are they doing? They're getting closer together. This is why the spiritual aspect, thank you guys, you can be seated. This is why the spiritual aspect of, of our lives is so important to our marriages, so important to our relationships. Because if we get our relationship with God right, it's going to fix our relationships with our spouses and other relationships that you have. you got a, a boss that's a problem. You know, he may not get closer to God, but you can get closer to God. You'll see how it starts to, starts to, to fix even those relationships. Maybe it's with your children. Maybe it's with your parents. Maybe it's, it's a brother or sister. Whatever the relationship is, as the people work to get closer, they draw closer to each other. 
So if you want to have a, a powerful marriage, if you want to have a marriage that's on fire for God, if you want to have a marriage that can weather all the storms and can, can combat against the undertow, can combat against the drift, just one simple tip I can give you today, one piece of advice, get closer to God. Don't worry about what she's doing or don't worry about what he's doing so much. I mean, be there to encourage them. Worry about yourself and getting yourself closer to God. Because really, the only thing you've got to move that other person is God. If you guys haven't figured out, some of you guys figured this out years ago, nagging doesn't work. We don't call it nagging anymore. What do we call it? Encouraging. Consistent encouraging, I think is the better term for it. It doesn't work. What it ends up doing is it ends up pushing the person further away. So nagging doesn't work. What works is as we draw closer to God, as we work on ourselves, we pray for that other person. We pray that God will soften their heart. God will draw that person closer in. This happens a lot. We see this a lot in churches where, where the husband will come, but the wife won't come, or the wife will come, and the husband won't come. That's okay. That's okay because you're not here for your wife. You're not here for your husband. You're here for you and your relationship with God. Work on that relationship. Very, very quickly this morning, I want to talk a little bit more about spiritual undertow. And I want to look very, very fast at eight different things that cause drift. Because if we can look at these eight different things that cause spiritual drift and be aware of them, by the way, this isn't the entire list. There are other things. This is just some of the, the main things that I see. And the scripture deals with these things. And if we look at these things and we start to, to recognize them, maybe, maybe we can say, you know what, this is why I'm drifting. This is why I'm drifting away from God. The first one is busyness. Busyness. We're just too busy. One of the great tools of Satan in our modern age is, is he's created a culture where everybody is busy all the time. Does that sound like anybody you know? There's just not enough time in the day. We talk about the days getting shorter. The days aren't really getting shorter. They're staying the same, still 24 hours. But it, they seem a lot shorter, don't they? It seems like no more than we get up and, and it's time to go to bed. I was working. I, I, my, my week got away from me. Normally, I try and keep Saturdays open. I was working all day yesterday, getting some stuff ready for the conference, getting some stuff ready for this morning. And I, I got up early and I went in and I did what I needed to do. And, and, and next thing I know, the sun's going down. Where did the day go? I didn't even get a nap. That I remember, maybe that's what I had. Maybe I fell asleep. I don't know. Ephesians 5.16 says, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Redeeming the time. Time is something that's very important. And I know we know that intellectually. But I wonder if sometimes we don't recognize that in our heart. How important time is. How important every single minute of every single day is. And it's easy to lose time. You know, we go on a, a Netflix binge. Or, you know, we, we lose time doing something else that, you know, uh, and there's nothing wrong with hobbies except when they pull your attention and your heart away from God. But it's just like everything else in the world. It's okay until it starts pulling us away. So maybe you're just too busy. Maybe we're not properly redeeming the time. Maybe we're not properly putting things in, in the place where they, where they need to be. Maybe we need to spend a little more time more thoughtfully and more prayerfully on our calendar and not just let the day take care of itself because if you let the day take care of itself there's enough evil in today and tomorrow to fill it up the distractions and satan is so good at distractions you know if you like chocolate he's not dangling vanilla in front of you he's dangling chocolate in front of you because he knows he has nothing to do but sit and watch you and see where you're weak and that's what he does and if you don't have, a, have your, your time laid out, if you haven't made a plan with God as to how you're going to spend your time, you'll forget to pray. You'll forget to read your Bibles. You'll be too busy to go to church. I have people, I'll talk to them, it's like, hey, I missed you on Sunday. Oh, I was just so busy all week at work. The only day I had to, to be home and do my cleaning at home was on Sunday. Well, you're too busy. You've got too much going on in your, your life. You've let Satan get too much going on in your life that he's pulled you away and People get mad at that. Like, well, I have to make a living for my family. Yes, you do. But you have to be wise about it. And you're making a living for your family should never take priority over worshiping God. 
Because once it does, that job and that money, that becomes your God. I, and, and do not crucify me over this. I know some people have to work on Sundays. That's not what I'm talking about. See, Pam got mad. She's leaving. <laughs> Actually, I, I'm having her take care of something in the other building. But uh, um, don't crucify me on that. Because you know what? If, if, if something happens right now, if I fall off the stage, does anybody get worried when I get right to the edge? People get feeling, I do that just to keep you awake. Like, Nobody sits right there because they're all afraid I'm going to fall on them. If I would happen to fall off the stage and break my leg, I really don't want to have to wait till tomorrow for the ambulance to come get me and take me to the hospital and have my leg set. So I know some people have to work. I understand that. I'm not, I'm not saying that. I'm saying when we make a conscious choice, a deliberate choice, and we put something in front of God, we're basically doing what Satan did, what Lucifer did. We're usurping his authority. We're taking God out of the place he's supposed to be, and we're putting something else there. Could be our family. Could be our job. Could be our children. Could be our health. And all these, there's nothing wrong with any of those things. Those things are all good. Those things are all given to us by God as a blessing. And then we take the things that were created, and we put them on top of the creator. And we take something that was meant for good, and we make it evil just by where we put it. Number two, we've got to get through these quick. Misplaced affections. Misplaced affections. Kind of what I was just transitioning to right there where, where we take something that is a created thing, something that's supposed to be something that's given to us as a blessing, and instead we turn around and we turn it into something evil because we put it in a place that's reserved for God. 1 John 2.15 says, Love not the world neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Those are pretty strong words, aren't they? Because the Bible tells us you can't love both. You can't have both. Matthew 6, 24 says, No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon is a word that means worldliness or wor the world. You can't serve both. You have to make a choice. Unfortunately, most people, without even making a, what they think is a conscious decision, they choose the world over God. We have churches in town. We have churches in our, in our vicinity, our greater vicinity, and, and I've had people tell me this. They'll say, uh, I'll say, well, why do you go to that church? That's like an hour from here. And they'll say, well, I go there for the business contacts. Oh, what are they worshiping? They're going to church. Sounds like they're worshiping God, right? But they're not going there for God. What are they going for? Money. They're worshiping mammon. They're going into a church, but they're worshiping mammon. We've got, we've got churches all over town. We've got churches all over our community that can, you can worship just about anything you want, and you can go find it at a church. We've got churches that worship business. We've got churches that worship politics. We've got churches that worship just about anything that you want to be part of. You can go and sit in a church and worship that thing, but understand if that thing is not God, you're worshiping mammon. You can't have two masters. You can only have one. One master. Number three, something else that may be causing spiritual drift in your life is discouragement. Discouragement. What does discouragement look like? Very simply, you, you had plans. Maybe God, you think God gave you plans, and, and you're doing something, and, and, and then you get discouraged. This is the life of a pastor. This is, this is one of the things in a pastor's life that, that causes so much spiritual drift. If you know a pastor, ask him. They'll confirm it. You know, you, you, you'll, somebody will come to church, and you'll pour into them, and you'll inf befriend them, and, and, and then the next thing you know, they just they ghost you. They're gone. And you, you, they don't answer your calls. You don't see them anymore. You run into them at the store, and they, they kind of go the other direction. And you're like, what did I do? And it took me a long time to realize they're not really mad at me. They're running away from God. It's just I remind them of God. This is how good looking I am. <laughs> and the hair again, yeah. <laughs> and so when they see me or they see somebody from the church, they think of God, and they got to run away from it. Well, that causes a lot of discouragement for pastors. 
Because you guys are like my family, my, my local spiritual family. And to have the, the back turned, that, that's hard. And so what happens, you, you know, we see pastors are, are leaving the ministry in droves today. There are churches all around this country that, that today there is not a, a, a pastor standing in the pulpit. They're using either a rotation of, of lay pastors or, or they've just closed down because there's not a pastor. When I first became a pastor here, I had uh, scheduled some, some uh, vacation time already. And so about six months in, I was up at, at a friend's house up in uh, North Florida. I can't remember the name of the town now. It was up in the Panhandle, a little tiny town. And uh, they said, oh, great, you can go to church with us on Sunday. So I'm like, okay, we'll go to church. I'll go to church with you on Sunday. And they had, they had a big piece of property up there. We had a great time up there. We go to church on Sunday. We get there, and uh, they don't have a pastor. And so basically we just sang some songs, and, and you know, one of the guys was, was reading from the Bible, and, and you know, they didn't really have any time of teaching or understanding and all. And, and it, it was, it was kind of sad. But it was, God bless them. They were doing the best they had with what, what they had. They found out towards the end that I was a pastor. Six months in the job, I'm a pastor, and they're like, hey, you want to move up here? <laughs> no. <laughs> that moment of pause. I'm like, no, no, no. Come to find out, this is up, up in North Florida. There's churches everywhere in town. You go to town, there'll be, you know, it's like how you've got uh, pharmacies here. You know, you got Walgreens, CVS, everything on the corners like that. You go up there, and it's that way with churches. And so we're at a little Baptist church, and across the street there's a little Baptist church, and, and on the other corner there's a little Baptist church. I'm like, man, there's a lot of churches. And the, the guy was telling me, he's like, none of these churches have pastors. None of them have pastors. Now, I don't know what happened to those churches. I don't know, maybe the pastors died. Maybe, maybe they got robbed. I don't know what happened. But that is a reality in our country. We're seeing churches closing, and we're seeing pastors that, that get to the point of discouragement, and it just doesn't stop at the pulpit. It, oftentimes, you know, we're working for God, and we get into that, that, that feeling of routine, and we get into that feeling that, that, you know what, that things aren't working the way we want. And I'll tell you what helped me, and it continues to help me, because I still get discouraged. I still get depressed sometimes. And I have to stop, and I have to remember. And 1 Corinthians 3, 6 has really helped me. It says, I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. You see, what it took for me and what it may take for you if you're discouraged about something, maybe it's spiritual, maybe it's something else, is to get a shift of focus. You see, it's, it's not my job to build the church. It's my job to lead whatever flock is here. Because my job isn't the shepherd. I'm just a hired hand. I'm an assistant or an under-shepherd. Kind of what pastor translates to. And he's telling us here, it's, it's not Apollos' job. It's not Paul's job. He's the one that's talking here, God is using. It's God's job. It's my job to plant, my job to water. It's your job to plant, it's your job to water. But don't be discouraged if you've told somebody about Jesus Christ and they've refused or they've rejected. Because it's not your job to make sure they accept. That's God's job. God gives the increase. Our job is to plant and water. Now, if you're not planting and watering, if you're not doing your part, then you own that discouragement. I'm not a, I'm not a proponent of the lottery, but, you know, there's that old joke that's out there where the guy, the guy is praying every week, praying every week, God, let me win the lottery, let me win the lottery, let me win the lottery. And he finally gets so disappointed, he gets so discouraged because God will not let him win the lottery that he shakes his fist at God and says, God, how come you never let me win? I see all these heathens winning the lottery. How come you never let me win? And God speaks audibly to him and says, well, you might start by buying a ticket. <laughs> you see, we've got a piece in this. And if we're not doing our piece, don't expect God just to bless because we're sitting around being lazy. God expects us to work. He expects us to move. But we have to understand in our shift because when we start working, sometimes our shift gets focused upon us and we expect to see results from, from what we do. And that's not how it works. God gives the increase. If it doesn't, if we're doing what God said to do and there's no increase, that's not for us. There's story after story after story of, of uh, missionaries who have gone to the field and, 
and they've preached their entire life, and they feel like, you know, they, they finally get to the end, and they're like, I didn't accomplish anything. But you go back to those mission fields today, and there's still churches there that are still winning souls because they did do something. They just didn't see the fruit of it. They didn't see the harvest in their lifetime. But there is a harvest that continues to take place today. Number four. Sometimes it's the opposite. Sometimes it's, it's not our discouragement. Sometimes it's not what we don't have. Sometimes it's our abundance. Abundance. Sometimes it's because we're blessed too much. We have too many things. First Timothy 6.10 says, For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some covet after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. It's one of the most misquoted and misused verses in the Bible. Not the, but one of the misquoted. Because people all the time will say money is the root of all evil. But that's not what it says, is it? Money is a tool. Just like a hammer, just like a screwdriver. And when they're used right, they can build things. And when they're used wrong, they can destroy things. A hammer can build, help build incredible pieces of art. You know, some, some people have such talent with tools in their hands that they can create things out of, out of wood and metal that just blows my mind. But those same tools can be used to hurt people. Those same tools can be used to hurt the person that's using them if they're not using them right. Anybody, anybody ever hit their finger with a hammer? That'll get you speaking in tongues. Sometimes it's our abundance. See, as, as humans, as, as, as carnal humans, we have this, this horrible habit that when we get a little bit, what do we want? More. And we get a little bit more, and what do we want? A little bit more. And a little bit more. And I'm, I have no problem with people working hard and making a living. I have no problem with people being wealthy. There are wealthy people in the Bible. Being wealthy is not a sin. But loving your money more than God is a sin. And it will pierce you through with many sorrows. I also have no problem with people being poor. We have a, a country that was built by poor people. People that by our standards today would be the, the, the poorest of the poor. You know, think back, look back, go, if, if your grandparents are still alive, talk to your grandparents or go back and talk to people that were alive in the, in the previous generation and see what, what they didn't have that we have today, like bathrooms. Can anybody here imagine not having a bathroom in your house? A hundred years ago, nobody had bathrooms in their houses. I mean, that was pretty, pretty standard, right? Yeah. You had to go outside, which I imagine wasn't too bad here in Florida. But upstate New York, where my family's from, my, my mom's side of the family, I cannot imagine in the middle of January, in the middle of the night, having to go out to the outhouse. Because I think they, they don't want to get gross. Didn't they? They had like buckets they kept inside, right? And then they'd go dump them when the sun came up or something. I don't know. That's, but still, I don't want to do that in a bucket. I don't want to have to dump that later. I want to flush it and have it go away. Pretend like it never existed. But we've become so abundant in this country. We've been blessed so much in this country. And, and the prayer that Jesus Christ gave us is a model. He said, we're to pray for our daily bread. But how often do we really pray for our daily bread when we know we've got a loaf of bread in the kitchen? And we've got a refrigerator that, that or in my house, I have two refrigerators because we're supposed to be transitioning to one refrigerator because we bought a new refrigerator. But instead, we've got two refrigerators so I'm using twice as much electricity, and it comes dinner time, and she's ah, there's nothing in here to fix. <laughs> what? We're going to have to go out to eat. What? <laughs> we have two refrigerators and a freezer. There's nothing here to fix. Didn't thaw anything out. We have a microwave. But anyways, I digress. There's too much, too much to cover for me to digress very much. God has blessed us so much in this country. He's blessed us with this country. He has blessed us with the ability to be able to work and to make not just a living, not just supply our needs, but so many of our wants, so many of our desires. We have access to the entire world now from, our, from a computer that we carry around in our pockets. 
We have access to, to a, a wealth of information. We have ways to make a living today that didn't even exist 20 years ago. You can make a living doing things today that, that didn't exist 10 years ago. God has blessed us beyond anything we deserve. By the way, that's kind of the definition of grace. But we're not, we won't have time to go down that path today. But sometimes because of that, we forget that he told us to pray for our daily bread. Our, our eyes get focused upon the abundance. Our eyes get focused upon the blessings instead of on the blesser. And I, I fall victim to this. Those of you that have been here on Wednesday nights, you know, we, we have a time where we give praise, and, and sometimes I have to stop and think about, what, what did God do for me this week? Really? Not everything for me this week. Every heartbeat is because of him. Having two refrigerators full is because of him. He's overly supplied my needs and my wants. And there's a, a trend, which is a very good trend, by the way, I think, of people that are, are they, call, they call them minimalists, and they have some other names for them, but they're basically like getting rid of stuff getting rid of stuff, moving into little tiny houses. Some people are doing it because it's cheaper to live that way. Other people are doing it saying, you know what? I get rid of all that stuff that I don't need. It was just clutter. I put it back out in the world. Somebody else can use it. And I just have my little tiny trailer, my little tiny house. That's all I need, that and God. You know? Maybe more of us need to do that. Number five. Something else that will cause us to drift away from God is unrepented sin. Unrepented sin. We all sin. Don't forget that. If you're here and you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're a sinner that's been saved by grace. If you're here and you're not, you're just a sinner that's condemned to hell. But we all sin. The key to keeping sin from, from causing us to drift is we have to repent of it. We have to clean ourselves, get it out of us, and give it back to God as quick as we can. Remember I talked before about that drift, how if you weren't careful, you would slowly move further and further and further down? You know, people that aren't aware of that, they, they look up and their blanket's gone, and they get panicky because they think somebody stole all their stuff. No, your stuff's a quarter of a mile down the beach where you left it. But they don't realize they're moving. We need to be more aware that we're drifting, more aware that unrepented sin, and as it gets into our life, that it causes us to drift so that instead of drifting way down the beach, we're constantly moving back, constantly moving back, constantly moving back. And that takes repentance. Repentance. We need to repent of our sins and give them back to God and continually move back against that drift. Again, it's not our power. It's not us fighting against it. It's us being aware of it and getting that drift out of our life as soon as it gets in. Instead of waiting till we're a quarter mile down the beach, we get rid of it when we're a foot, two foot, three foot down the beach. And we're constantly going back to God, constantly going back to him and asking him to repent of our, we're repenting of our sins. In Hebrews 12, 1, it says, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witness, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Now, you may think you're a brick wall to sin, but here God says sin easily besets us. Now how, how many times in your spiritual life have you allowed a little tiny sin to get into your life? That's ah, just a little sin. I can manage this. I did so much good today, this little tiny sin is not going to hurt anything. That little tiny sin is like cancer. It doesn't stay little. It's got to be dealt with. The good thing is, is with most cancers and with all spiritual conditions, if you deal with it when it's little, you can get rid of it before there's effects. Just have it knock it out, and you don't have to deal with it. But if you ignore it, what happens when you ignore the cancer? It grows, and it grows. And it gets to a point where now it's not just a little thing to get rid of it. Now it's major surgery. Or it's gone too far. Now it's going to take your life. You know, we need to, to deal with it quickly. When, as soon as we see sins coming in and spotting us, it needs to be dealt with 
quickly and completely. Number six, not fellowshipping with the saints. Something else that will cause drift is not fellowshipping with the saints. Now, fellowshipping with the saints, I can take on a couple things. It can, take, it can mean, well, we actually have fellowship time. You know, we have fellowship time. Some people are like, oh, I don't want to fellowship people. They, they take off out of here really, really quick. You know, they'll come and spend you know, the hour here in the service, but they don't want anything else to do. We, we plan events. We do different things. No, 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 that's not me. I'll come on Sunday morning, but I don't want to do anything else. And they're denying themselves the blessings and the benefits of fellowshipping with the saints. It's a lot more than just food. When we come together and, and, and work together and all, think about, think about things like that we do that we don't even, sometimes we don't even realize it's fellowship time, like the pumpkin patch. Now, those of you that work the pumpkin patch, you work with other people. And it's people you know and recognize, but, but you know, I hear the conversations. I see what's going on. You draw closer and closer and closer. Why? Because you're fellowshipping with each other. If we want to stay close to God, we need to stay close to his church. And his church is his people. We need to be close to that. If, if you're building a fire, if you've got a fire going in the backyard, and it's time, i gotta, I got to make a fire. I need, I'm waiting for, pray for one more good cold snap because i got some wood I need to burn. <laughs> it's just too hot today to burn wood. So, when you've got a fire going, you, know, you put the log on there and it doesn't work logs and all. Every once in a while, what will happen is, you know, when, as it burns and it breaks, one of the logs will fall and it rolls out of the fire, right? But you got a pit. It gets way over there by the rocks or by the barrier or something like that. Maybe it rolls out in your yard. Maybe you don't have a pit. And when it rolls away, that red-hot log that was just on fire, it starts to dim pretty quick, doesn't it? And before too long, even though the fire is still raging, even though there's still fuel there that needs to be burned, what happens to that log that's all by itself? It gets colder and colder until eventually it just dies. The same is the picture of the Christian life. You can be red hot on fire one week and skip church the next week, and now you're, now you're colder. And you're colder. And the colder you get, the more offensive the fire looks. God didn't call us to be cold logs. He called us to be on fire for Christ. If we want to stay on fire, we need to be around other people. And it's not just about us. It's not just about him. It's about the other people. You see, because they need you around them so that they can be on fire as well. I want to encourage you, even if you're not that kind of person, when we have a fellowship time, hang out for the other people. Come and be part of it for the other people. Put your selfishness aside and be there for somebody else. And be a blessing to them. Help build them up. Number seven. Not sharing Jesus. Not sharing Jesus. This is probably at the root. This one and the next one are probably the two main causes of drift and undertow in the Christian's life. Not sharing Jesus. Jesus was so clear and so concise when he was preparing to leave. He'd already been crucified. He'd already rose from the grave. He's been on the earth for 40 days. He's getting ready to go back. And at the end of Matthew, he gives us what we call the great, what? Commission. He gives us our commission. Now, now, what is a commission? Some of you military guys, what? What? Is, when you, when you hear commission, what do you think of? Dean, what's a commission? Your orders, right? How did you know what boat to get on? Ship. Excuse me. <laughs> you had your orders. You had your commission. You were told, you're on this ship. How'd you know what job to do? You had your orders. You're doing this job. How'd you know who to report to? Well, they usually, they're pretty quick to tell you. But, uh, but you had your orders. And, and it doesn't just stop there at the beginning, does it? You didn't, okay, I've got, I got to get on this boat, and I got to do this, and I got to do this. And that, that's my orders, and I'm done. Did you ever get any more orders? Like every day? Like every moment of every day? You're constantly giving you orders. But the, the orders that God gave us, that we, our commission, is found in Matthew 28. Verse number 18, it says, And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. And then 19 is generally where we say the commission starts. He's talking to the church members. He's talking to us. He says, Go ye therefore, and teach all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Those are his orders. That's how we know what to do. We go, we tell, we teach. That's it. That's it. We have pretty simple orders. Most of us aren't doing that. When was the last time you went? By the way, this isn't winting. This is sitting. Winting is when we get up and we go someplace. We have to go. There needs to be purpose to where we go. When the ship took off, did you have just say, ah, let's go left. Left. I'd make a good captain, wouldn't I? Yeah, your other left. No, he had. He knew because he also had orders. We're going here and we're going here for this purpose. We need to go with purpose. Since I'm picking on you, Dean, not really picking on you, but since you're you're my my uh, you're you're my counsel this morning on all things military. If he gets it wrong, make sure you let him know. What would happen when you got your orders? And you're like, what was the name of your ship? First, Jersey. Okay, you're like, ah. Oh. New Jersey, I hear the food's better on the Eisenhower. <laughs> I'm going to the Eisenhower. You tried it. Yeah, I, I'm not shocked by that. I'm not shocked by that. So what happens if you say, yeah, oh, okay, I understand my order, but I don't like that order. I want to do something different. Military's okay with that, right? They're very flexible on stuff like that, aren't they? Yeah. No. What would happen? What's that? You're in trouble. You're either, one of two things is going to end up happening. You're going into a little box. That little box may be on shore or maybe back on the ship you were supposed to be on in the first place. You're going to be in a box because you were bad. And when nobody's looking, you're probably going to get whooped. But anyways, well, not today's military. Back then. By the way, I saw pictures of your son getting off topic here at work. Glenn. He looked terrifying. Didn't he? You saw the pictures? I'm like, whoa. He's a drill instructor. But Glenn's one of the nicest guys. And I, I just couldn't imagine him being mean and tough. And I saw that picture and I'm like, whoa. He looks scary in that picture. So let him know. He, tell him he scared me. I, I couldn't even sleep. It was just like, that's not true. I fell asleep, you know, not looking at the picture because that'd be weird, right? No. Um, but we have been given commands. And when we choose to do something other than those commands, we can't expect to be close to God. We're going to get punished. Instead of having a closeness, it's going to build a wall between us. It's going to build a barrier between us. Because even, even once you got back on your boat and you're back in that, your ship, I don't know why I keep calling it a boat. When you're back on your ship, I'm going to get, I'm going to get put in a box. Um, you get back on your ship and you have a change of heart. You say, okay, now I want to do my job. No. you got to spend some time in the box. Maybe eventually, because you're disobedient, you were wrong. And we, what we've done is, and it's not the fault of the captain, it's, it's your fault. It's not God's fault. You built the wall by being disobedient. God will take that wall down, though. And if you're truly repentant, he'll take that wall down quick and put you back to work right where you were. Number eight, the last one we're going to talk about. Kind of goes hand in hand with that one, but a little different. Number eight, not spending time with the Father. It sounds kind of like a, well, duh. If we want a closeness with God, you know what we got to do? We got to spend time with God. We have to spend time with God if we want to be close to Him. I also do marital counseling. One of the things I try and get the marital couple to do, even if they, even if they don't seem like they like each other very much, is I get, try and get them to spend some time together. Spend a little bit of time. Go on a date. Go walk on the beach. Go to the park. Stare mean at each other at the park. You can do it at home. Go do it at the park. 
but just spend some time together. Be with each other. Because something happens when you're alone with somebody and you're with somebody, you start to, you start to communicate. It's time for a date night, Miguel. I can, I can read it right in your face. It's right there. You are so guilty looking right now. <laughs> Take some time. Get away from the kids. Get away from the grandkids. And just the two of you get together and spend some time together. You don't have to do anything expensive. You don't have to do anything formal. Just be alone. Same thing is true with our Father. We need to set aside time. This is where the busyness gets in our way. The first one we talked about, we need to spend some time to be with God. We need to plan to read our Bibles. We need to plan to pray. That doesn't mean we don't just spontaneously read our Bibles from time to time. You ever done that? Where you just, something's on your mind and you just go and you like, pick up a Bible and just, just open it up and start reading. It's amazing how God works that way and that's great. I applaud you for that, but, but you need also to have some scheduled time where you're going to read your Bible. You need to have some scheduled time where you're going to pray. I know we're supposed to pray unceasingly, but also schedule some time. This is my prayer time. And if, if your prayer time is at, at 3 o'clock on Tuesday, and, and somebody calls you up and says, hey, can you meet me here at 3 o'clock on Tuesday? You don't have to tell them why. Just say, oh, I'm sorry, I already got an appointment. Can we do it at 4 o'clock or 3.30 or whatever works for you? Just like if it was a doctor's appointment, just like it was the time you had to be to work. If somebody calls and wants you to do something and you say, oh, I'm supposed to be at work at three, but hey, yeah, I'll blow off work and come, come with you. You don't stay employed very long, do you? You start damaging that employer relationship. Let's, let's give God at least the same uh, place in our lives as our jobs or our doctor's appointments. Schedule some time and hold to it. There's a cure for this, by the way. Beyond the things that we've talked to, there's a, there's a cure. There's a, a, a across-the-board kind of cure. It is a, a, a thing that we don't do enough of, and we probably aren't doing it the right way a lot of times, but it's one of the simplest things that we can do. The cure for drift is an active prayer life. You say, well, that's simple. If it's so simple, why aren't we doing it more often? I know, thank you, Jesus, for this food. Now I lay me down to sleep. Our Father that art in heaven. I'm not talking about vain repetition of prayers that mean nothing and don't get past the ceiling. I'm talking about actual conversations with God. When was the last time you had an actual conversation with God? If we want to stop the drift in our life, we need to be praying to God. 2 Samuel 22, verses 2 and through 4 says, And he said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, the God of my rock. In him will I trust. He is my shield and the horn of my salvation, my high tower my, and my refuge, my Savior. Thou savest me from violence. I will call on the Lord, who is worthy to be praised, so shall I be saved from mine enemies. Did you notice that prayer was a little different, wasn't it? Almost that entire thing he's talking about there was all about God. Then at the very end, he got to, I'll be saved from my enemies. You see, oftentimes when we pray, we become very self-centered in our prayers. We become very self-centered where our prayers is about me and I. And I, I do this. Again, I'm not, just, I'm not pointing fingers. I'm pointing fingers at myself. I sit down with God and I say, God, I need this and I need this and I need this and this scares me and I don't know how to do this. God, you got to fix all this stuff. But over and over in the Bible, we see a very different picture of prayer. We see a picture of prayer that is God-centered and not man-centered. The model prayer that Jesus gave us, how does it start out? Ourselves who are here on earth, right? No, how does it start out? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Right? In heaven as it is on earth. Over and over. Is, is any of that about me? That's all about him. Over and over again, it's about him. You're almost, you're almost two-thirds through that prayer before we're finally into, give us this day our daily bread. 
you know, protect us from, from this and protect us from that. There's nothing wrong with praying for things that we need. God wants us to pray for things that we need. He even warns us and, and tells us that we have not because we ask not. In other words, we're not praying for things we need. But we have to understand and, and keep the Him first in our prayers. Recognize that He is what's worthy, not us. A thousand years from now, whatever you're going through right now is going to seem very, very insignificant to you. But God will still be significant. I want to do something this morning. I want you to you guys got to move around a little bit. I want you to get in like groups of four, maybe five, kind of huddle up together. So some of you that are out there on the, in, the outer edges, you got to move in with other people and stuff. Get in little groups of four and five. You got to move. Group, group can be bigger, smaller. Four or five is, good, is a good number. Six is fine. Three is okay. All right? You don't have to stand. You can sit as long as you can kind of communicate with each other. Because this is what I want you guys to do. We're not going to put everybody on the spot. This group has seven. Did anybody say anything about seven? I mean, it was <laughs> Some are more social. In your little group, we're going to use this, this prayer that was here. Here he uses this prayer. He says, I will call upon the, on the Lord who is worthy to be praised. And so each one of us in our, inside of ourselves, we're going, to, we're going to use that phrase. Lord, you are worthy to be praised. And then what does it say after that? It says, so shall I be saved from mine enemies. What is your enemy today? Your enemy is anything that is causing you to drift right? That's your enemy. God, you're worthy to be praised. Help me defeat my busyness. God, you're worthy to be praised. Help me, help me to spend more time with you, be closer to you. God, you are worthy to be praised. And whatever it is that's separating you from God, I want each of you to pray that in your hearts. But then I want one person in each group, figure it out amongst yourself, that's going to pray for your little group. And you're going to pray out loud for your little group. And you're going to mention each person by name. Now you wish you had a smaller group, don't you? You're going to mention each person by name. If you need to get in smaller groups, go ahead and do it now. And, uh, and, 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 and pray for them and, and help them just to more, I don't want to say generic because that sounds horrible, but, but to fight the enemy of the undertow. Fight the enemy of drifting away from him and pray for each other. So you're going to pray for yourself and you're going to pray for everybody else in your group. But I, I want one person. Figure out amongst yourself who it is, who, you, who you're going to designate, who you're going to pick to pray. And let's go ahead and spend a few minutes of uh, time in prayer. If you want to turn to 2 Samuel 22, you can do that. done praying just kind of sit quietly and be respectful of those that are still praying father god you are my rock you are my fortress 
you are my deliverer. Father God, I trust in your shield. Father, you are my high tower that I can run to when I have troubles. Father, I pray for each person that's here today, those that are watching online, those that couldn't be here for whatever reason, Father, I pray for them. I pray, Father, that they would turn back to you, that they would move from whatever it is that's causing drift in their life, and they would see that you are the one that is worthy to be praised, not by these things that are causing the distractions in their lives. Father, I pray that they would recognize them for what they are as tools of Satan and tools of our sinful hearts. And Father, they would turn away from those things and they would turn back to you. Father, save them from their enemy. Save them from whatever is causing them to move away from you. Father, help each one of us to draw closer to you than we ever have been before in our lives. Father, we love you. Father, we see fit to bring honor before you. We see fit to, to glorify you because you're the only one that is worthy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand. We ask our